You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Nick Gregory, who is running Flask and Python in production to power an open source weather exploration tool. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your weather app? Sure thing. So I'm Nick Gregory. I'm a security engineer at a security startup by day. Um, I've had a site that I've been working on for a number of years now, uh, which aims to be an end-to-end site for meteorological data. So everything from initial data ingest, from radar imagery, models from NOAA, satellite data, basically anything all the way through textual summarizations of uh, of that data saying it's going to be rainy throughout the day. Ah, so when you say weather exploration tool, like you weren't kidding, like this sounds like it will be a lot more information than like, oh, it's 35 degrees out. Yeah, exactly. So one of the big goals that I have with this that I haven't seen anywhere else is actually preserving where we're getting this data from, right? Most all sites start getting their data from NOAA or from some other public sources, but it, you never actually see like exactly where those numbers came from. Uh, and so that's one of the goals with this project is turning it into a completely open, uh, making a completely open pipeline. So you can track exactly where data is coming from, where it's going to. Maybe let's say you happen to know that one model trends more accurately in your area. You could even just filter for that model in particular and look at its data um, and to you know, basically build your own forecast if you wanted to. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know very much about pulling weather data from various APIs, but I guess what? There's multiple ones that you can choose from, I guess? Yeah. So for instance, uh, there's three common models uh, that cover the US. Uh, there's the GFS, uh, the NOM, and the HRRR. Um, one, of, one of those, the HRR, is more short-term and generally a little bit more accurate, uh, but only over the US. So, you know, in certain cases, it may actually be preferential to just use that data instead of the, you know, wider and potentially less accurate uh, GFS. So the goal is to basically turn all of that into just an API query so you don't have to worry about actually extracting the data, differences in how it's saved or anything like that. You just say, give me the GFS data for this location, and we spit back a list of numbers, and then you can process those however you want, or you can ask for a summarization, and we can give you back the summarization directly. Okay. So it actually sounds like probably you're dealing with uh, a ton of ton of data, right? Yes. So one of the interesting problems that this project has is just the amount of data and I guess the velocity of the data, if you will. Um, currently, we have roughly 750 gigs of data that completely cycles over about every two days on average. Um, and all of that data needs to be queryable in you know a couple hundred milliseconds at worst, so that you can get your your forecast quickly and not have to wait you know minutes for it to actually process. So yeah, data data processing and uh, the pipeline here is a big part of the project. Man, that that's an intense amount of data for sure. It's something, and we'll definitely get into like what database you use and strategies you use to deal with that. 
But before we get into that, are you the only developer working on this project? Currently, yes. Um, it is an open source project, so I hope to have more people working on it later, but I'm currently the only developer and I guess like the initial driver of it. Yeah. How's that experience been so far? It's been pretty good. Um, I've definitely had to learn how to, you know, set my own timeline and basically self-manage a bit more than I'm used to, right? Because I basically have to make deadlines for myself versus just let it keep going indefinitely. Um, and now that, you know, I'm actually starting to go out and talk about it a bit more, I need to make sure that the site is up constantly, that it's you know, roadmapped out roughly what, what it's going to be doing or what we're going to be adding in the next month, you know, few months. So it's definitely been a learning experience from that stance. Uh, from the actual programming development side, not a whole lot different. It's uh, Python, which has been kind of my go-to language for many, many years now. But um, definitely, definitely things to have uh, things to learn from the management side. Yeah, it's really tricky to manage your own self-going projects, like when there's no boss to account to or anything like exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> so you mentioned open source. Is this on GitHub or GitLab? Yeah, this is on GitHub right now. Um, I believe there will be a link uh, along with the podcast if you're interested. Yeah, for sure. We'll have many links in the show notes. So you mentioned Python is your go-to language and also that Flask is powering the web server for this application. Was there any particular reason why you chose to use that? Or is it just like what you had experience in? Like what went on with that? Yeah, so the primary driver for that was experience, um, especially you know, a couple of years back when I was initially starting this. That was just what I knew. Um, however, it also ties in nicely because most of the libraries that are well supported for dealing with all this data are in Python. So it's nice to be able to have both the data pipeline side and the front end all in Python. Um, as for Flask over, over like uh, Django or something else like that, uh, mainly just I knew Flask and I knew it would work for my use case. I don't really have a reason to go and learn anything else uh, for this. Okay. So would it be fair to say, like, if you rewrote your app today from scratch, because you mentioned working on this for a couple of years now, you would still use the same uh, Flask and Python? Yeah, uh, I think the only difference that I may make uh, is there's a few parts where I may split out uh, certain API calls to a more high performance thing, like uh, maybe Go or something like that. But for the most part, yeah, I would say I'd probably end up just keeping it Flask for uniformity, if nothing else. Right. And for Flask itself, for the web server component, are you using GUnicorn or are you Whiskey or something else? Uh, GUnicorn right now. So what made you choose that one over the competition? So primarily ease of, uh, ease of deployment. Um, there's been, uh, so I've, I've had experience with that. I've also been wanting to keep this relatively, uh, I guess, minimalistic. And I've had a little bit of experience with UWSGI in the past, uh, especially trying to tie it into like uh, Apache um, uh, through the WSGI plugin in Apache. And it get, it can get a little bit hairy. And it's just one thing that I didn't really want to deal with. Um, if it de definitely, if it ends up being a performance problem, I believe UWSGI does benchmark slightly better. So if, you know, if I run into issues with too many requests per second, then I may consider changing it. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I remember 
I don't know how many years ago it's been now. It must have been at least four, five, six years ago. Instagram put out some article about using G-Unicorn. They were using Django, I think, on their back end, but still using G-Unicorn. And we're like, oh yeah, well, we benchmarked it against UISGI, and it's like, G-Unicorn was more stable, I think they said, when it comes when it came to like memory usage. But it was like one of those things where it's like, you know, if they can serve millions or tens of millions of requests per second, it's like, it's probably going to work for our apps as well. Yeah, I think one of their main reasons for choosing it too was like, like you say, it was just very easy to get going. Like you can just drop in a G-Unicorn config with like three lines of configuration and you're done. Yeah, exactly. This is... Um... For reference here, uh, I used to run the infrastructure for a large cybersecurity event, and we used Gunicorn and a, a Python, also Flask-built web app for that. Um, I didn't actually develop that originally, but just I, we had all kinds of issues trying to get UWSGI to work. I think we had an issue in one case where the way UWSGI was originally forking Python made it so that it was trying to use the same database connection cross request thread. And so you would end up with all kinds of just random assertion errors um, from, you know, non-thread safe code being called cross thread. Uh, and after that, I was just like, I, there's not really a reason to, I think at that point I was using, or at the point I was using UWSGI to, uh, try and get slightly better benchmark numbers but that just that put a bad taste in my mouth yeah for sure that sounds like a nightmare scenario so is this application a single monolithic app or do you have it broken up into like a microservice based architecture so it, it kind of sits like in a, in a in the middle right now uh the front end and api stuff is all one monolith However, that's not where the that's not where the majority of the code is. Uh, the majority of the code's on ingest and processing right now. So, and of course, the ingest and all that does run completely separately. It's not in line with the web server. So, sort of, uh, I guess the part that you'll actually be interacting with is all monolithic. There are a couple things where, again, I may end up uh, pushing out microservices for some of the uh, think some of the things where I just need to do really, really fast, offend, effectively key value lookups. They're not quite. It's actually doing uh, coordinate transformations, but you can cache those. And we need to end up. We can do many of those per request that comes into the front end. So that's one thing that I may consider bunting out to a microservice potentially, and again something like Go uh, that's slightly higher performant, but also you know not a pain to work with to get working network-wise. Right. So I haven't really written anything besides a couple of toy examples with Go, but I felt like it's one of those languages where if you know Python, you can sort of look at Go code without even knowing it, but sort of just understand what's going on, kind of. Yeah. I was introduced to Go actually in a distributed systems class, um, I think two years ago now. And it was very much that I was like, oh, it's just a len function. Oh, and it's just, you know, append, right? It's Pretty, it's pretty Pythonic in a bunch of things. Um, I also use it uh, in my day job. Uh, all of our stuff's written in Go, so I've become a lot more uh, familiar with it. But yeah, it's definitely, it's easy to pick up. It's pretty high performant. And honestly, if I got to give them credit for one thing, just all of the ways, like all the networking stuff is just super nice to work with. They really did a good job with that. Um, just the fact that you can spin up a web server in you know, 10 lines of code and it's all native and you can just 
bunt off Go routines for every request and not really have problems with concurrency limits. Like, really, really good job there. So I have other problems with the language, but like that, that I will give them. Right. Yeah, I don't know enough about their HTTP library, but from the code samples I saw, it looked like a like a very nice API. It's it's pretty good. So you mentioned you have the you know Unicorn Flask app serves the web front end, but you have another service doing the ingesting of all of that data. Uh, do you just have that running like in a like a salary task or something like that? Like how do you have that set up? Sure. So the the way ingest currently works, uh, this is all deployed, and I guess we'll talk about this a little bit later. This is all deployed onto a Kubernetes uh, cluster right now. And those are actually just set up as Kubernetes cron jobs. Um, basically, every data source that we try and ingest has a small worker, which just every hour or three hours or however frequently the data is available, will just push a bunch of things into a queue that basically say, here's the URL, here's what type of data it is. Uh, and then a worker comes along every couple minutes, uh, or you know, if there's already a worker running, they'll pick it up. But every couple minutes and we'll pop off that queue. Uh, this is all actually just backed by Postgres. Uh, it abstracted away enough where I could put SQS or uh, or like a RabbitMQ or something more of an act, like something actually more queue-like uh, under it, but it's currently just Postgres. That comes along, pops stuff off, and then just processes, you know, whatever it was told to. So it ends up being surprisingly robust for just some cron jobs and a worker, uh, but it gets the job done. And I guess one of the things that we'll probably talk about a bit later too that's interesting is that worker only takes a couple seconds to ingest you know, potentially 100 megs of data. So it can stay on top of that queue really easily, even just having one worker run at a time. Huh, that is super interesting. So is that abstraction on the worker, like being able to pick whatever backend that you want, is that all provided by, what did you call it, like a Kubernetes cron job or something? Yeah, so so the cron job just specifies the URLs, and, or the URLs that the worker actually needs, uh, and then the source of the data. Currently, all of the data that we get is effectively the same file format, so it doesn't need to really switch uh, exactly what backend it's using, but the you could easily do that by just looking basically by tying the file format loader to the source that it's coming from. So, for example, radar data that you get in real time is not the same format as the model data, but if you if we know that the source that this data is coming from is you know real time radar, we can just spin off the appropriate uh, worker for that. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And it's kind of nice that you're able to use Postgres as the backend for that. I think a couple of years ago, right? Like using Postgres as like job queue processing backend, it would be like unheard of. Like you would use Redis or RabbitMQ, but yeah, nowadays it's actually pretty awesome. Yeah, it's really nice. There is a library, I think just called PQ actually, that uh, I'm using that you just instantiate it, give it some database credentials and it does all the rest. You can... Uh, toss in rows uh, to be dequeued later. You can requeue items for a later time. Uh, you can you can even actually one thing that I make use of is say only dequeue this if it's been more than some amount of time since it was originally put in the queue. So I can actually you know queue something for five minutes later and basically as a retry mechanism I do that in a bunch of places. It's a really nice library. 
So I have not worked with that library. Is that then a, that's a Python library, right? Yep, Python library that just wraps a few few pretty easy, if I remember correctly, Postgres calls um, that just do atomic uh, inserts, selects, deletes. And that's basically your queue. Yeah. No, I've been playing with uh, Elixir recently, and they have a library that basically does what that library you just described, but but for Elixir. And yeah, there was some guy saying that he's been u- using it in production, handling like. 20 to 30,000 queue items like per hour. Postgres is no joke. It can, it can operate as a queue backend, no problem. Yeah, Postgres, Postgres is a really an amazing thing. Yeah, so are you actually using Postgres then for all of those 750 gigs? So I was originally actually. Um, this has been recently refactored to split out the raw data actually into S3. Um, basically, we end up storing metadata in Postgres uh, and then that metadata for any given location allows you to just index into some file in S3 and just retrieve the you know few kilobytes or whatever that you actually need. Uh, this is kind of the the fun part of this entire project. Uh, all the ingest really does is flatten out data in a specific way and then just kicks it into S3. Uh, everything else after that is just a matter of transforming whatever latitude and longitude you give into the appropriate grids, uh, the appropriate coordinates effectively to index into the gridded data. And then since HTTP natively supports a range header, you can just request that specific chunk of you know, potentially a 20, 30 gig file uh, and you get it from S3 in a couple milliseconds. Um, and so there's a few other tricks. Uh, for example, if we have, let's say, five different runs of the same model, all five of those runs are going to have the same projection. So they're going to have the same transformation of latitude, longitude into uh, grid coordinates. And so we ingest stuff immediately and it becomes immediately available. But then every, I think, 15 minutes right now, there's a merger that runs through and basically looks for things that are the same projection and rewrites their S3 files so that you get more continuous runs of data. So you end up making less requests to S3. So at the end of the day, you do one request in to the the, uh, API to get the weather for a specific latitude, longitude, and you maybe will make 10, 20 requests to S3 and that's it. Uh, All that data basically just gets unpacked as a series of floats and returned. Huh, so those files in S3 there are tens of gigs each in size. Yes. So currently, that's uh, currently the reducer will only merge things up to about fifteen gigs. Uh, that's actually one of the things that I need to expand right now because we're we've hit a point with the amount of data that we're ingesting where even with that limit, uh, you'll still end up doing hundreds of requests to S three per request that's coming into the front end, uh, which just doesn't scale very well. So. The nice part about that, though, is all I need to do is just tune that knob in the reducer and say, actually, just merge more things together and let those files in S3 be a little bit larger. And then that just linearly reduces the number of queries that you have to actually make to S3. And that's that's basically the entire overhead of an API call, really, is the uh, RTT to S3 and it getting data. So these files that are massive, you know, tens of gigs or whatever, what type of file format are they? Are they CSVs or something else? It is It is just a raw binary. Um, it is, at the end of the day, it's really a series of floats. 
So just you've taken a floating point number and you've just taken the raw bytes and shoved them into a file. Uh, the nice part about that, though, is since we know everything's floats, we know exactly how big every cell effectively is, how big every run of data for a given latitude longitude is. And so you can really quickly and really efficiently just grab all of the data for the given lat lon. And then within that, you basically do a lookup against Postgres to say, okay, at offset zero of this cell is, I don't know, the data from run one. And then the data at offset two, or the data, yeah, data offset two is the, is the data from run two. And that, you know, under the hood, that's actually translated into an exact run of a model. So when the analysis happened, when it's valid for, uh, in addition to what the actual data is representing. So like, is it whether it's raining or is it the intensity of the wind or uh, is it visibility or some other metric? But it ends up just reducing really nicely to just have a metadata store in Postgres and then just completely dumb data effectively in S3 that you can just then match up to whatever metadata you have in Postgres uh, and then return what the user actually asked for. Yeah, that sounds like a really a really good combination for the type of data set you're working with, like tons and tons and tons of data, but you don't need to store it in Postgres, but you found a way to index it quickly. Yeah. So one thing that was actually interesting is for a while, I did have everything in Postgres and it actually worked surprisingly well. Um, there were a few issues that I ran into where Postgres was eagerly compressing data, which made indexing into it slower than it should have been. Because uh, it you know it has to decompress potentially an entire meg or two chunk and then actually index into that for every row that we're trying to return. Uh, so what I ended up doing was just pre-grouping everything by lat lon by location. The problem there though is that we very quickly run into issues where the models, for instance, that we're ingesting only have a resolution of at most. I believe it's 0.25 degrees per cell, which sounds like a lot, but then you've got to realize that's 0.25 degrees of the entire circumference of the earth. And so that 0.25 degrees may actually be, you know, a large part of an entire state. Uh, and so it's fine. That's fine if you're just looking at models, but if you're also wanting to combine much higher resolution data, like real time radar imagery, each cells in there may only be less than a mile across. So you have these drastically different data resolutions that storing everything in Postgres, you either end up with just too many rows for Postgres to be able to do stuff efficiently, or you end up with a drastic loss of data resolution because you either have to step down to your lowest common denominator, right? So all of your data has to be downsampled to 0.25 degrees resolution, which just kind of completely eliminates the benefits of certain data sets, or step up your data to the highest resolution. And then that just makes your data set grow exponentially, right? Because if you have quarter or like one mile uh, resolution radar data, if you have to reinterpret the same data from a model to that resolution, you're going to, I don't know, at least tenfold the size of the model data, if not more. Uh, and so you just, it, it ends up 
not really working out for multiple res for drastically different resolutions. So it did work for a little bit, but it was a design decision that I eventually was like, okay, this needs to be rewritten. And that was uh, a pretty big rewrite that I was working on uh, about two months ago. So how many rows, like roughly, were you writing into Postgres before you were like, well, this this is not working? Uh, I know for some of my experiments, I had upwards of two and a half billion. Um, I think those were for entirely denormalized data. So everything had its own separate row. Uh, I believe if I, I believe what I ended up with there was optimizing it so that every row in Postgres actually contained inside of that row a basically a row of the gridded data. So you still end up with millions of rows, uh, tens of millions basically, uh, which Postgres does an, a surprisingly good job of getting through. Um, even then, I think I still had query times down in the like hundreds of milliseconds. So it was like it was doing a really good job. But then I just realized this isn't going to work for future, basically. So it works really well right now, but not not there for things that I want to do in the future. Right. And here I am, like really sweating the bullets on doing some full text search in Postgres across like 100,000 rows, but you're dealing with tens of millions and up to like billions before you moved over. <laughs> yeah, so... And Such a different amount. It, it is. And the, the nice thing though is that even then, if we were able to like really make use of B-trees and just Postgres is searching. So, you know, indexing into any given data set probably wouldn't actually take more than, I don't know, 20 iterations of a loop right inside of Postgres to walk down a tree. But yeah, no, it was, it just, it became very unpalatable at the end there. So, yeah. So going back to what you said before about like different resolutions of weather data, like I was trying to visualize that in my mind. Like if you go to like weather.com, pop in your zip code and you get the weather for the past, then, I mean, I guess the radar looks pretty accurate. Like, you know, it looks like a fine resolution, but when you put it into the future, suddenly it's like, you have like these Minecraft style blocks yeah. that's like half of New York just for one like quadrant or whatever, like one little block. Yeah. So th this is this is probably one of the biggest problems that everyone has to solve in this field one way or another. Most of the time what you're seeing when you get super blocky data like that is just it's basically just the fact that doing numerical weather simulation, which I believe is what weather.com does for their future uh, radar stuff, it's just really computationally expensive um, to the point where NOAA has not the largest supercomputers, but some of the largest supercomputers uh, in the U.S. just to do numerical simulations on, right? Private, private businesses start with that. And then even just to get that blocky stuff that you're seeing, I wouldn't be surprised if that's a multi-hundred node compute cluster just to do that across, you know, probably across the world. Um, but you know, obviously at a much lower resolution than the data we actually have coming in from real-time radar. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you think, okay, it's maybe a, a thousand by 2000 grid or something, but that's only what you see when it's actually downsampled for output. Um, the, the models that I'm working with, for example, um, under the hood, those are using potentially 100 meter, one kilometer uh, grids across the entire Earth and also up through the atmosphere. 
So it just, it very quickly is like, okay, that's actually not a small problem. This requires massive computing power. And it's just not really possible to do that at scale for almost anyone else uh, besides governments or really, really large industry. It is one of the most interesting problems. Uh, that's part of the reason why I like this and why I like working on this website is it's just like, it's a really interesting problem, even at this scale, right? This isn't even full resolution. This is just the output data and it's still really difficult just to make that usable. So yeah, there's everybody, everybody knocks it, but it's really hard. <laughs> Yeah, it's also kind of funny too, because it's like, if you just look out your window and you see clouds out in the distance and the wind is like blowing at you, you can kind of be like, okay, well, maybe it's going to rain in two hours. So this is, it's actually really interesting that you bring this up. This is a uh, uh, part of a future, uh, future looking thing, I guess, that I have. Uh, I've been doing some messing around in the past couple months with using exactly what you described, cloud cover and wind, to figure out, can we actually do maybe not the most scientifically accurate, but maybe it's close enough for the next hour, say. Can you just take where the rain is now and which way it's going and just do linear extrapolation to say, you know, we think it's going to get here in 45 minutes, even though the only models that we have that actually say anything about this are from analysis done three hours ago and say it actually just already is here because they were working under the assumption that, you know, the wind was going a bit faster. So it turns out this actually does work uh, surprisingly well, in fact. Uh, there's another site called uh, Dark Sky, which has been doing this for, I think, about five years now. Uh, basically, they will show you up at the top of the screen if it's going to be raining with the next hour. They're, and they're pretty accurate. You know, They'll be able to say 10 minutes or eight minutes, you know, so it's at least minutely resolution. Um, and they're usually pretty correct uh, because at that short term, it's basically just a problem of, yeah, that cloud that's over there is moving at a speed such that it'll be over here in n minutes. Um, this doesn't really work for more than an hour or two out just because you start to run into basically butterfly effect things where you know, small, small differences end up drastically expanding. Um, but for the short term, it does work. And this is one thing that I am hoping to integrate into the site uh, in a little bit. Uh, just that kind of super like hyper local, hyper specific uh, forecasting of particularly rain. Right. That would sound pretty useful for someone like me who my primary mode of exercise is to like walk and jog around the neighborhood. The right now, like what's happening in the next hour exactly. is the most important. Yeah. To me. Do I leave now? Do I leave in 20 minutes? Is the rain going to end soon or am I stuck here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So going back to your tech stack, we know that you're using Python G Unicorn. You have Postgres on the back end using Kubernetes. Like what does the rest of your tech stack look like? Are you using Docker locally in development? Yes, like uh, Docker is used heavily um, and I don't think I could really work without it at this point. One of the hardest things with this actually is that most of these Python libraries are actually just C, uh, Cython, I believe. I, forget, I always forget if it's C Python, but I think that's the implementation. I think it's Cython. Uh, extensions that just reach out to a C library. And so it's super easy to break it if you don't have exact versions pinned, if you don't have the right things on your host. Um, so using Docker for 
everything from ingest to actual final processing and display has been invaluable because I can just set up a script once, say here's the exact version of you know this kind of esoteric library that you need, and I'll always have that version, and I don't have to potentially mess up anything on my host to get it. Yeah, that definitely makes a big difference. So what type of base operating system do you use in your Docker images? Um, I believe it's Ubuntu right now. Uh, the primary reason for that actually is just Ubuntu, for whatever reason, happens to just have pre-built packages for the libraries that I need. Uh, and the Python side libraries seem to be built with Ubuntu users in mind. I'm sure you could get it to work on like CentOS or maybe even Alpine, but it it's one of those things where, again, no real time wasted. So I just say, all right, I'll deal with a slightly bigger Docker image at the end of the day using Ubuntu instead of an Alpine base, for instance, uh, just to get the trade-off of, I can just apt install exactly what I need and not have to deal with manually building packages or hoping that you know Alpine actually keeps up this specific package, which you know, I'm sure maybe 10 other people in the world are using. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, Ubuntu base for now. Yeah. So I went through the similar comparisons. Like I used Alpine in the past, but for the past maybe like a year and a half or so, I've just switched back to using Debian as a base image. Yeah. It's just super well supported. Like you just know if you're used to the apt package manager, you just know the names of everything. And it's just convenient. Yeah. Yeah. Convenient and very, very well, like, battle-hardened. Uh, yes, also very true. So you're using Docker. Do you have anything running, like, in front of the G-Unicorn web server, like Nginx or Apache? Um, so currently, no. Uh, actually, I take that back. I do have uh, Trafic, I believe is how you pronounce it, sitting in front uh, doing T uh, TLS SSL termination uh, before it actually hits uh, G-Unicorn. Um, and then I believe the current, the site also has Cloudflare in front of that primarily just for caching the static assets. So yes, but not, I guess, in the normal sense, not a, not a stock standard Nginx or anything in front of it. Right. Yeah. So traffic, I guess that's how you say it too. Yeah. I've never really pronounced that one out loud. You're using that in combination with Kubernetes. Like it's just acting as a reverse proxy to the Flask app. Yep. Um, been using it and TLS. Yeah, been using it for a year or so now, and actually been very happy with it. Uh, it was a bit annoying when they decided to change up uh, like how you configure everything for version two a couple months back, but it was needed. Like it was a necessary change. Just had to sit down for a night and figure out how to rewrite all my configs. Um, but yeah, very useful. Love that I don't even have to think about. You know, did I enable Let's Encrypt and get certs? It just deals with all of that. It is aware of Kubernetes deployment, so you can actually just tag a service in Kubernetes and say, I want this to be exposed to this, like on this host, and Trafic does the rest. Uh, you don't have to worry about setting up, you know, vhosts or server entries in Nginx. Uh, you just tag everything in Kubernetes or in Docker, and it knows how to do the rest. It's, it's very nice for that. Yeah, the only thing that didn't like about it, but I guess it's not... It's not because like it's a problem with the tool. It just it's not made for that. But like you can't serve assets with it, right? That's true. Yeah, they. I don't think they have any caching or anything in there. So like I said, I do have Cloudflare in front, so that takes care of that for me. But yeah, in general, uh, I don't think it's the most like it's not going for high performance static uh, like Nginx is, for instance. Right. But everything else, yeah, it seems like a really 
a really solid tool. Yeah. I was a little afraid to start using it in production because it's like, well, you compare that to Nginx where Nginx has been running for how many, like a decade, like a long time. But, uh, you know, at some point you have to bite the bullet and try these tools out. Like plenty of people are using it successfully. So I imagine it's a solid tool. Yeah, like I said, it's been working well for a year or so for me. Um, once I got that config rewrite, been rock solid. So I've been happy with it. So speaking of uh, config rewriting, so what do, do they still use Toml for their configuration or is it something else? I believe that they've made it so that you can also just use YAML now. Um, it's actually been a while since I've done the config writing for it, but I believe that it, you can now also write it in YAML so you don't have to be, like, it's not quite so annoying. I, If I remember correctly, though, I didn't end up having to do almost any configuration in the YAML or Toml besides basically just setting up uh, Let's Encrypt settings. Uh, so, you know, email address and like, yes, I've accepted the EULA or whatever it is. Because basically everything else, again, is just through Docker or Kubernetes tagging of, you know, the container or service. Um, I, would, I would have to dig it back up to be sure of that, but I don't remember it being particularly terrible for... What, what, for what I'm doing, which is, I guess, relatively normal use case for it. Um, I was trying to use it in another place to do raw TCP forwarding, and that did take a little bit of like looking into the source, I think, because the docs weren't fully updated uh, for 2.0, which introduced raw TCP forwarding uh, at the time. So that was a little bit iffy, but for normal HTTP, just need TLS termination and proxying, you know, and load balancing works great. Nice. But, and you can also do like common things you would do with Nginx, I guess, as well, like redirecting HTTP to HTTPS. Yes, they have, I believe 2.0 redid most of how that works to, I believe they have an abstraction now that are just called middlewares. And so you can have traffic do authentication for you. You can have it do static redirects. You can have it do, uh, I think it can even do path rewriting in certain cases. Um, it. It works for, I would guess, about 90% or like 99% of you know, what Nginx is used for besides just super, super high performance stuff. Um, it is fast, but I don't think it's Nginx fast. Right. But going back to like that Instagram blog post with G-Unicorn, it's like probably going to be fast enough for your site. Yeah, or, exactly. you know, not just yours specifically, but just about everybody. If you're working on a scale where it's not, you probably knew that from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, you mentioned Kubernetes is running all of this in production. We didn't talk about this yet, but where are you running all of this in production? So I actually have a set of servers that I co-locate, uh, which is where that's currently running. Uh, the primary motivation for that is a lot of the research that I do just on the side. I just need a ton of storage and a ton of performance. So I've just had those around instead of spending you know, hundreds of dollars on AWS. So that's where it is currently. Uh, I do have some funding through AWS now, actually, uh, credits. So I'll probably be moving it over to that, mainly just because I don't then actually have to host uh, at Minio, which is what I use for S3 locally. Um, I can actually use S3. But it's been really nice just having all that locally. It took it took a good couple days to get Kubernetes set up and you know working how I'd expect and all that, but it's been really nice uh, having all that locally. I've even started to use it for some of my other um, like internal stuff. I can just you know spin up a workload and it'll just get assigned to somewhere that I have compute power 
uh, and it's it's really nice. So with this colo, then do you you just have one server you bought that's being sit that's sitting in the colo? So I yeah I have two actually, but yeah they're they're just uh, coloed uh, over in uh, here in New York actually. Oh, nice. Did you ever visit that location or no? No, so you can actually just uh, ship them off basically and then remote hands will take care of setting them up and uh, you know wiring them and then you basically just say, here's the IP address and that's it. So it works nicely. Uh, it's been a while since those got installed though. I think you are the first guest who is using a Colo. Like everyone nowadays is so used to using cloud hosting yep. providers. Like for everyone listening, like a Colo is basically a physical presence somewhere where you provide the hardware, they provide the networking and maybe support, like, you know, making sure things are still working on the hardware front and uh, you pay them amount of money and they give you access to the internet. Is that basically what goes on with your setup? Yep, basically. Uh, it's been it's been nice and easy. I just, I've had my own hardware for many years now. Uh, I think I... <laughs> Funny story here, actually, when I was in high school, I actually had like a server in my basement. Um, so like I've had had my own hardware quite a while and just the cloud's great, but I just need a lot of compute a lot of the time. <laughs> uh, and so I just, you know, it's just cheaper. Um, cloud's great for crazy scale, which is, again, part of the reason why I'm going to be moving this just so that I can absorb a large traffic hit if I need to. But for day-to-day -day stuff, Colo, love it. You know, spend a couple thousand dollars on servers one time and that's it for years. Yeah. So it's a couple thousand bucks. Like what type of specs are we dealing with on this server? Uh, out of the two, one of them is an older one uh, that I've had, I think, for four years now, which is just a Dell R710 that I think I got off of Amazon. I believe it's a single eight core processor, 96 gig of RAM, and I believe it ends up being six terabytes of spinning disk in a RAID 5 plus a two terabyte SSD that I have in there. Wow, that, that's no joke. No, no, yeah, I've, I, uh, <laughs> I need a lot of storage for some of the security stuff that I do. Um, it, it's amazing how much data you can generate. <laughs> Um, and then the other one is actually a much more recent box that is a uh, Threadripper-based one. So I believe it's 16 physical cores. So with hyperthread or with um, whatever AMD calls hyperthreading, uh, 32 cores uh, or 32 virtual cores, 64 gig of RAM, and then uh, two two terabyte NVMe drives in there, which have been super nice for running Postgres on. Yeah, that is a beast mode setup. Yeah, that's part of how I get those, uh, or I guess part of how I got those performance numbers with Postgres in the past. It really does help being able to pull stuff off of disk at you know multiple gigs a second. I know about consumer-grade hardware, but when it comes to those NVMe drives, like how many of those could you theoretically fit on your server if you had to? So the, the motherboard itself, I believe, only has two NVMe slots, and then it also has... Uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name of it. There's another form that's actually like a, a wire uh, that you can then terminate into uh, PCIe SSDs. So you basically, it's effectively PCIe lanes over a wire. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the port, but I believe if I filled all of that up, uh, that would be 
I think you can fit four SSDs off of those, and I think there's two other ports. So it'd be 10 SSDs total, plus whatever you could cram into the PCIe slots on the motherboard itself. Um, so you could you could really, like, you, you could put some crazy numbers through that, but that costs a lot more money than I care to spend on it. So, Yeah, but still, though, I mean, it's kind of cool that you can just go to, to Amazon or Newegg or something, buy, like, a four-terabyte SSD of some variant for like 200 bucks or whatever, ship it to your colo. And now it's like you have that. Yeah. That's again, that, that, that right there basically sums up why I still have all that. You know, if I wanted to get equivalent performance in EC2, assuming that I could get that over EBS. So, you know, that right there means I need a slightly larger node than I may want to use for whatever project. Um, you know, you're looking at what is it like? one cent per gig month or something like that for EBS. So if I needed a couple terabytes, that's now 10 or 20 bucks a month. If I need that for a year, well, there's my cost recouped. So yeah, it's, right. it works, works really well for longer term stuff. Yeah, for sure. So what, uh, well, I imagine you're running Linux on these servers, yes. thankfully. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a distro that I use, or I guess distro uh, called Proxmox. Um, it's, uh, Debian based, but they put a really nice UI on top of everything and also put cluster management stuff. So while it's not Kubernetes level where I could just say, give me a VM, I still actually have to say like what host it goes on to. Um, it will do everything from scheduling backups to, you know, if, if I had more people on them, I could do centralized authentication. I can do live migrations of VMs between hosts, actually one of the really nice things that I can do. You can run containers natively on it as well. So if I need something that's super high performance and I actually do this for Postgres right now, that actually runs in a container. So I don't even have uh, any overhead of going through like a virtual hard disk. It is straight onto the NVMe SSDs, just like any other process that would be running on bare metal. Really nice to show, completely free, would recommend. Huh, interesting. Yeah, I have not heard of that one before. And I was also surprised to say like one of its selling points is like a, a good GUI, but it's like kind of running on a server. Yeah, it's it's surprisingly useful. It's one of those things where you think, oh, well, you know, you can do everything through the command line. It's just sometimes it's just so nice to be able to see at a glance, you know, here's the status of all the VMs you have. You can look, you can graph CPU, memory usage, disk usage over time. You can graph it per node, so you can even see like, all right, this node is actually nearing its limits. Uh, you know, I need to start moving stuff elsewhere. You know, it again, CLI is great for a bunch of stuff, but having a nice web UI on top of it, it's it's worth it. So and it's free, so you know, can't really beat that. Yeah, you definitely can't beat free. So when it comes to configuring all of these, well, both of your servers and the Kubernetes setup, like, did you just do that by hand or did you use some type of configuration management tool? Um, so all that was actually done by hand, uh, primarily. So at least with the servers, that's just because I got them at very different times, um, right? I've had one of the servers for three or four years now. The other one, I believe I just ended up getting like and late last summer, effectively. And then Kubernetes itself, there's... Actually, I take that back. Kubernetes stuff was not done by hand. That was done by a tool made by Rancher, I believe. Uh, I'm, I think it's RKE, the Rancher Kubernetes engine, if I remember correctly. Um, basically, you give it a config and you say, here's the username, password, IPs for some hosts. 
and say like, I want to use this provider for uh, intranode communication, like network communication, use this for block storage, and it will go and configure Kubernetes on all of them, link everything up, set up uh, DNS, all of that kind of stuff. And basically we'll just dump out a kube config that you can start using. Um, took a couple revisions to get like my config for that correct, but it's also would recommend that if you're either running Kubernetes locally or if you want to use um, you know, EC2 or something, but don't want to use EKS for whatever reason, RK is great. Um, it doesn't have you know the same auto expandability, I guess, that EKS does, but if you have some reserved instances or something in EC2 or cross-cloud even. You could easily set up a cross-cloud Kubernetes thing with this. Really nice, easy to use, full-featured enough that it works You know, for my stuff. I think the only thing that I would complain about is like the docs maybe aren't the best thing in the world, but the defaults work, I would imagine, for 90% of use cases. Very cool. Yeah, because I just had a guest on last week and they described setting up their own Kubernetes self-managed as terrifying. Like it was not easy. <laughs> yeah. So actually before I found RKE, I, I don't think I ended up actually starting, but I was reading through, you know, building out Kubernetes manual, manually. And that almost detoured me from it. I actually for a while was just messing around with you. Know, maybe Docker Swarm will be enough. You know, let's not overcomplicate things if we don't need to. But Swarm was great if I just had some things that I needed to be running. Uh, but like, I don't believe there was a way to do cron jobs. There's absolutely no, at least easy way to do any type of access control. So even you know between projects, it's just kind of the same thing. And if you happen to get access to whatever the Swarm endpoint is, like you know that's GG. Um, and again coming from like a security background that kind of terrifies me. Um, so Kubernetes at the end of the day with RKE, basically just as easy to set up as Swarm and gives you all of Kubernetes. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Now that you have the server set up, when it comes to things like error reporting and logging and metrics and stuff like that, are you just running things directly on your server? Are you using any third-party services for that or no? Um, so currently there's actually a lack of that in the project. Um, I've been meaning to set up Sentry because uh, I've used it in the past for the Flask uh, front-end or API side of things. Uh, and I've also been meaning to set up some stuff that effectively just wraps the entire Angus pipeline in a try accept and just shoots me an email if something goes wrong. Haven't done either yet though, but I know from from the past, Sentry is super, super easy to integrate. It also would recommend it for anyone uh, if they're looking for easy to integrate air logging or yeah, air triage maybe would be a better way to say it. Solution, especially for Python uh, and Flask, you basically just import a package and you're effectively done. Uh, it does some magic to hook what it needs on the application object from Flask and you're off and running. As for the email stuff, I'll probably will actually look around to see if there's anything similar. I'm assuming that there's some easy way that you can just, you know, auto send an email on some specified condition. Uh, maybe, probably not from within Kubernetes, but I, like, I'm assuming there's some shim that you can put on top of it to do that. But yeah, both, both to-dos, but at least with the Flask side, uh, know what I'm doing there, so. Right. Now that you have the server is kind of sitting there, everything is set up Kubernetes-wise, uh, what does it look like for you to deploy code 
to the server? Like, how does code get from your dev box onto there? So I, since this is all completely open source, I actually just have a Docker hub building, uh, building off the repo constantly. So you can just go Docker pull uh, the WX Explorer image. What I do currently, since this is kind of the beta slash staging, more towards staging uh, website, is all of the ingest stuff actually just runs off of the latest tag, which I know is not best practice, but it works. Um, and so since these runners are cron jobs, you know, don't stay running for very long, basically the next time they go to run, they'll just pick up the most recent code uh, because Kubernetes will see it needs to repull the image and go grab the most recent one. For the API itself, that I've basically been just doing the same thing. And then if, I, if there's a big enough change that I need to make it public, then I'll just go manually you know, kill the service, bring it back up, and they'll just pull down the most recent one. Um, that's definitely something that I've also been meaning to, you know, more productionize, um, make it so that this is more like Git deploy based. So actually have a, you know, release branch that I'll be pushing to that will run CI, CD or whatever the case may be, and then actually go through, uh, go through Kubernetes and properly add a new one, let traffic uh, or traffic uh, possibly A, B it for a while. I'm not sure if I really care that much right now, but at the very least, let it come up, make sure traffic's hitting the new instance and then tear down the old one. Um, again, stuff that I just need to do, but time, time is very, very lacking right now. So. Right. So when you say things get built on the Docker Hub straight from the Git repo, then you're not using any type of CI right now. Not currently, no. Um, I do have, so one of the things I actually run on those servers besides this is my own GitLab instance. Um, and so I'll probably be putting some preliminary stuff up there. Uh, though GitHub does have actions now, which I've been wanting to use for something more complicated than just you know tagging like labels onto issues and stuff like that. So I may give that a shot. Uh, for doing either some testing of code that's going out or the actual deployment. Um, again, since it is all open, as long as the kube config doesn't get released somehow, I don't really mind any of that being public. So, Why is that uh, kube config? Does that have credentials in there, like secret keys? Yeah, so the kube config is, if you have that, you basically can own the entire cluster that gives you all the credentials that you need, assuming that like your IP is not blacklisted or something. Uh, but since GitHub Actions just run on Azure VMs, there's not really a way to whitelist just GitHub Actions. Uh, so yeah, if that got out, then the entire cluster, you can basically just spin up your own container with the kube config. Uh, and then then basically just say, I'm I want a very privileged container that happens to mount the host root into the container. Uh, and then you can now just write anything arbitrarily onto the host and own the entire cluster. Yeah, that's probably not a good thing. No, to <laughs> that, that is kind of, that's partially one of the reasons that I haven't been putting this like super, you know, why I haven't been prioritizing this over other things just because, you know, it works as is. And again, I am, since this project is all, Spare time, only one on it. You know, if if there's something that's going to sidetrack me for a day, I probably don't really have time for it right now. So it it works. Yeah, I kind of like that. You know, it's just kind of 
move forward, get things working, and then deal with the problems like on a case by case. Yeah, exactly. And like none of these are again like terribly huge issues. They're all things that can be pretty easily addressed, and I just need to sit down and actually address them one day. Yeah. So one last thing related to deployment here: How do you deal with database migrations with the setup? Ah, so. Luckily, since we're not actually storing a whole bunch of stuff in the database, there's not actually a whole lot of changing to the schemas right now. If there is, the other nice thing is that we also don't have user account data right now. So everything's effectively recreatable. Um, what I have currently is a seed script, which will reconstruct all of the tables that the ingest side needs to actually ingest stuff. So it will recreate all the metrics that we need, all of the sources that we pull from, and kind of the cross of those two, which I call source fields, which basically describe, uh, you know, this is a specific metric for a source. So this is like the raining or the field that describes whether it is whether whether or not it is raining in the GFS model. Um, and that seed script I can run in a couple seconds, goes through, recreates all that, also goes through and recreates all of the location lookup tables. So right now, if I do need to make a schema change, it's literally just tear it all down, bring it all back up. Yet another thing, no, I won't be able to do that in the future uh, because I do hope to have some kind of counts uh, at some point, at the very least, so you can record your home location. But even then, I've been thinking maybe I can do that entirely browser side because, to be quite frank, there's not really a reason that I need user credentials. Um, you know, just store it in a cookie on the browser. If they change browsers, well, just have them enter their zip code again. It's probably easier than logging into an account. So, yeah, you know, at, at the very least, right now, I don't even see that I necessarily need to have an actually. Like I don't, I don't see that I need to have a plan in the foreseeable future for dealing with you know, crazy migrations where I actually would need you know a good way of rolling back and rolling or rolling forward and rolling back. Um, I can just tear everything down and bring it back up. It's also nice because then you know if I did happen to make a change in the ingest code, I know that I'm not messing up old data or. You know, I'm not, there's, there's not going to be any incompatibilities that I you know, didn't foresee in the migration or anything. You know, let's say the actual way we store a metric changed, it's all gone. So it doesn't matter. The one issue with that for the future though, is that when I do that, right, we lose all the metadata for all the files that are in S3. So we effectively lose all of the data that we currently have. Since it does cycle over every couple of days, that's not been an issue so far because I don't have time to work on this you know, too frequently. So I'll do a deploy late at night, wake up the next morning, and by that time I have enough data to work on it again. The only thing there is the table that holds the metadata for all of this is at the end of the day, really simplistic, right? There's not really any real, there's a bit of relational stuff going on, but it's just, basically just a tuple right there's no real logic there um and so i don't really foresee the need to do a whole lot of migrations in short yeah my usual like follow-up question about that would be like well how do you like plan for disasters and database backups yeah. but it almost sounds like there's really no that's, need to back that's up the thing is yeah again of... it's like all of the data is pretty short-lived in general right the longest a model goes out is basically five days or the longest that i care about the model goes out is five days um, and yeah, it wouldn't be great to have incomplete data for five days, but it's also completely usable, you know, even just after a couple hours of an entire database 
destruction, you know, we've loaded in one run from every model that we have in three hours because that's how that's how frequently they run. So, you know, sure, absolute worst case, three hours of downtime. It's even less actually if you're in the U.S. because the HRRs run hourly. So, you know, the worst ever case would be an hour of downtime. Um, which again, and this is sorry. Go ahead. Actually, we didn't go over this. Is is this made for like regular Joe Blow, like to do consumer, like citizen level? Is it raining out, or is it made for like meteorologists? So it, it's kind of for both. At the end of the day, the goal is to have both. Um, currently, I've been building it around the more consumer side of things, right? Because that's really what most people are. Um, but again, since we do have all of this data and we have this entire uh, history of like where this data came from. One of the things that I am looking forward to doing is adding more, uh, I guess, more things that would really only apply to meteorologists. Um, so, you know, perhaps you don't care about what the like, uh, there's a specific thing in meteorology called the CAPE. Uh, it's the convective available potential energy. Um, basically just describes how much potential energy there is in the system. So like how dangerous it could get. Average users don't care about that, but people who are interested may use that as a way to say, you know, if they're storm chasing, for instance, that's an often, that's one of the components that makes uh, certain storms tornadic versus non-tornadic is whether they have enough cape. Um, and so you could use this because again, that's just another field in the model. So to me, that's not any different. Um, I just have to add a single row into the database and I start ingesting all that data. Uh, and then whoever wants to use it can make use of it in whatever they want. And that also sort of ties into mapping, again, coming down the line. You know, it is supposed to also tie into some of the more, again, weather enthusiast focused sites, which do just have graphs of all of the different model outputs, you know, basically every field in every model, every run. Um, and I do want to have something similar, but again, using some of this like data processing infrastructure that I have. So it's not just rendering a chart, you know, I can make it more interactive. Maybe I can make it easier to overlay different ones on top of each other. You know, maybe you could even do something in browsers that you could, say, show me places where all three of these fields meet some condition, right? You know, there's a lot of places where you could make this much more exploratory, which is one thing I do want to get towards. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Like, I wouldn't say I'm a weather enthusiast, but it's like, I don't know, I, I like charts and graphs. And like, I, that's something I would just maybe look at every once in a while just for yeah. fun. So, and I guess one other thing um, that should, should be up uh, by the time this podcast goes live is, um, in addition to the summarizations themselves of just saying, you know, it's going to be cloudy through the day, basically any data point in there. So for instance, the cloudy in that part, you'll actually be able to click on and get a graph that's just specific to that metric. So it's no longer just a bunch of data that seems to have no context. It is, here is the graph that represents that data point. Here's what we're thinking it is, right? Like here's the average line or the median line or whatever, but you can also see, okay, here's the skew, right? It's probably going to be that, but there's actually a lot of models that say it's not going to be, or there's a lot, or there's, you know, complete agreeance on the other end of the spectrum. Everything says it's probably going to be cloudy or everything says it's going to be snowing. It's probably going to be snowing um, versus, you know, there's like a 50% chance and more recent models happen to be skewing that it's not going to be snowing. 
you'll be able to interact with that more uh, dynamically than you can on other sites where it's just yes or no, right? At the end of the day on most of those sites. So going back to your site, uh, just one last thing about the disaster recovery and stuff like that. Do you have like any external monitoring tool set up? Like, do you ever get notified if the site goes down? Yeah. So I do. So at a very high level, yes. Um, I've been using a, a service called Status Cake for many years. I don't think it's necessarily the best thing anymore, but again, it's just, it's what I've been using and it's free where they basically, they'll ping your site every, I think the free tier, the fastest they'll do it is every five minutes, I want to say. Um, and basically all they're looking for is anomalous status codes. So in this case, it's nice because Cloudflare will, you know, if it can't connect or if it's experiencing something like it'll synthesize, I think they put a 429 if the backend's actually down. Um, so like I'll get an email about that. Um, but as to like currently there needs to be some uh, performance improvements done. And so the site isn't actually usable at the moment, but like the front end still loads. So it not full like end to end effectively uh, uh, uptime and status checking. Um, status cake should actually be able to do monitoring of the API. I actually just need to tell it to hit a more expensive endpoint. I think right now I'm basically just telling it to monitor uh, the like metrics thing, which is effectively a static page uh, or the metrics endpoint, which is basically a static page. Uh, but if I told it to actually request the weather for a specific website, you know, I, I'm sure I would uncover uh, issues um, that where I haven't done any notification before. Um, but yeah, Status Cake works. Not the best thing in the world, but it works. Yeah, no, sounds like uh, it does what it needs to exactly. do. And there's similar services that are free, like Uptime Robot is the same deal. Like it just pings your site every five minutes looking for a 200 status code or you get emailed. Yep. And again, like since since this is currently, you know, personal project, interesting personal project that I hope gets use, but like still definitely a personal project. I don't really need anything more. I don't need any of that fancy, you know, one every second and like we'll guarantee, you know, whatever, whatever. It'll just tell me if it's down for long enough that I care. So So I guess wrapping things up a bit here, like what are some of your best tips and lessons learned from developing this app? Um, so I guess wrapping back to the beginning, actually learning how to self-manage, uh, that's been one of the biggest things with this is, you know, setting my own deadlines on stuff, even though, you know, it's completely artificial and I know it's completely artificial, but setting my own deadlines, say this will be done at this point, um, actually breaking down, uh, objectives, right? This, this entire thing started with, I want to build a weather website because it's interesting, Right breaking that down into, okay, to do that, I need to get these data sources, which I know have these different attributes, figuring out, you know, this, this one in particular, okay, is now higher resolution. So I need to start accounting for that. That, that was a big challenge because I hit that point again, not too long ago where I was like, great, I need to rewrite basically the entire ingest stuff. Do I really care enough? Um, but I was like, nope, I've got, I'm going to keep going at this. Um, and just that kind of like self-drive, I guess, was a, a big thing. Um, Development-wise, this was, I think, the first time that I really used Docker in development so fully. So that was a nice experience uh, to actually be like, this is exactly the use case that they were going for, right? I get the exact reproducible environment and it's kind of a weird one, but it's what I need. So 
figuring out like all the little quirks that there are, especially with Python, where, you know, for instance, if you want really fast stuff, which I do everything inside a Docker container when I'm developing, so I need these to spin up and tear down really quickly. Even the small things like copying your requirements file over first, installing everything from there, and then copying the rest of your source tree so that you don't end up copying all of your source all the time and then reinstalling everything every time you build the image. Small tip, saved so much development time once I was like, wait, why am I not doing it this way? Otherwise, yeah, it, like overall, it's been a pretty pleasant experience developing, I guess. Um, yeah. So one thing you mentioned about like the project management side of things, how do you keep yourself accountable for stuff like that? Because that's one of my biggest problems. It's like, it's so easy to set the deadline, but then what happens when you go exactly. beyond it? Like, Yeah, well, I missed it. Oh, no. Um, so what I've been doing is actually, I, for some reason, I started using my own GitLab instance for this and not GitHub. I don't know why, but I started there and I kept at it. Um, setting up actual issues just like I would at work. Setting up actual project boards just like I would at work. Um, setting up actual deadlines on those issues and those milestones, right? Um, just treating it just like I do a job and just sticking to it like that, right? If I start to see, okay, I've got two days until I get, you know, like, uh, I've got two days until this deadline comes up, you know, the response is either, oh, great, <laughs> um, or, okay, let me get started working on it, right? Um, it also helps personally that this is just something I've been very interested in. You know, the weather's always just fascinated me. So even the things that are normally like, why do I have to do this? Like, this is just annoying to work on. I can, I guess, reframe internally to just, all right, this is an interesting challenge, you know, but I do want to see what happens once I make it work. For instance, with that, the uh, uh, like short-term or the like very short-term forecasting stuff that I was talking about where you're just extrapolating from radar. I spent a good couple of weeks working on prototypes for that. Um, and I actually got really annoyed halfway through because it turns out you can't actually just use the wind. You actually have to look at the velocity of the storm itself. And I was trying to use all of these other libraries uh, to do like, uh, I'm blanking on the name of it. I believe it's particle image velocimetry. Uh, it's like a very scientific way of doing particle motion detection. Um, and I was trying to use libraries for that to do it, you know, the right way or whatever. And I was getting so annoyed and so annoyed because then I had a self-imposed deadline of getting this done. Um, and then eventually I was like, all right, I need to see this working. I think I resorted just like OpenCV's motion detection worked beautifully in like a couple hours. Um, so again, for me, it's it's all about just making it, all right, this is going to be really interesting when I figure it out. So I need to figure it out. So. Right. Yeah. I think that's a testament to just, if you can scratch your own itch, it's like something exactly. you really want, then that's like the best way to move forward because you actually exactly. want it. Yeah. It's, it is like, I'm going to get this done. It's going to be cool. I know it's going to be cool. I just have to get through this roadblock. Yep. So on that note, Nick, Thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks for having me again. I'm sure it was kind of a different one with a personal project and everything, but glad uh, glad I could be on. Yeah, no, I thought it was awesome. And there's been a couple personal projects on. I like this because it's like, yeah, we cover things from all sorts of different scale. You know, it doesn't just need to be big sites or, you know, popular sites with big companies. Like, I love the personal side. Just one dude, one person working on one project. And uh, yeah, I like it. Cool stuff. 
before we wrap this up, uh, do you have any links that you want to share? Maybe to your site, Twitter, GitHub? Uh, sure thing. So I am KLSims on uh, Twitter and GitHub, uh, github.com slash KLSims. The project is currently called WX Explore. I am very looking, like, I'm. if you give me a new name for that, I will probably take it, no matter how, how bad it is, because it's probably better than that. Um, so it's currently KLSim slash WX Explorer. Um, same thing on Docker, if you just want to, like, pull down the images and start looking at stuff. Um, I'm not very active on Twitter, but again, I am KLSims on Twitter. Uh, otherwise, that's basically it. The site is uh, vortexweather.io. Uh, right now, I just got that domain, actually, and... The site will hopefully be good when the podcast goes out. Yeah, yeah. I'll make sure to drop all of that in the show notes, and I'm sure it'll be up and available in a, a week uh, and a half. I'll, I'll try it. I'll try and put some work into it at the end. <laughs> yeah, make sure to make sure to open up an issue on yes, that one. Yes, we'll do. We'll do. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.